Would you turn please to Matthew chapter 7? Matthew 7. And we are approaching the end of the series we've called the teachings of Christ or the teachings of Jesus. Some of you might know this section of Scripture as the Sermon on the Mount. We've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount for several weeks now. And we're getting to the last several sections of it. Actually, we're getting to uh, an invitation uh, at the end of his sermon. So you have a sermon. And at the end of the sermon is a thing called an invitation, which uh, I, I suppose we didn't invent it. Jesus did it, and we keep doing it. And I'd like just to talk about the invitation for a second. <clears throat> Some of you might think of it uh, in the old school as an altar call, uh, or a prayer of decision. Uh, when I was a boy, there were occasions where every head would be bowed and every eye would be closed. And lots of verses of just as I am might be sung. And we would uh, signify a commitment or a decision being made by the raising of a hand. I will be honest with you, at some level, the, uh, the invitation is the hardest part of my job in preaching. So working out, uh, building that habit, an area I would say that I'm not uh, very naturally good or that I don't have, these things might not even land well, but I just lack some of the sound confidence in some of these areas. I have to, there's places in your life where you have to continually re-derive, just can't sit on what you learned. This is one of these places for me. And I think in part because, uh, for one, uh, Culture's changed, so the invitational style that I grew up under, I just don't think is uh, in tune with culture. For like what an altar call, I feel like that's pretty challenging today. Our culture, as I observe, has become very, uh, in public they're very private, and in private they tend to be public. <laughs> right. So they'll do things and say things on Facebook that I can't believe. Uh, but in public, they don't want to stick out at all. So things like altar calls become all the more uh, s- significant. Also, uh, again, I'm just going to give you these things, uh, not as excuses, but I want us to think around the invitation. My feeling as a boy, and this was a feeling that I didn't assign words to. You know, as a child, you have feelings and impressions that as an adult, you finally can put words to. So these are words I'm assigning now to a feeling I had back then. But I noticed a lot of times, you know, there's a camp and and all sorts of churches that I was part of and grew up in, that there were occasions where, you know, the pastor would bow your heads and you you felt like we weren't going to stop praying until somebody made a decision. Like... We're here for a while, folks. And the feeling I had was, um, is the minister trying to validate his message off of the response he gets in the decision? And that stuck with me. That might be why one of the reasons it's hard for me. I find now that I'm a, uh, the man preaching, I do find uh, some of that fear getting in the way. 
the invitation. Lastly, I think one challenge behind invitations is some of the things that make the invitations of Christ so so real and so significant is the stark truths that he puts up. Salvation, heaven, hell, repentance. These issues are right in front of us in living color, and uh, we've come into a more gentle time in the way we talk about eternity. So we can talk a lot about hell and eight part, or excuse me, eight parts heaven to one part hell. If you're lucky, that's sort of the ratio. Which makes, by the way, an invitation, it weakens the invitation. So it's very hard to invite someone to something that has been so under-described. Well, at any rate, here we are in the Sermon on the Mount, and we get to the end of his sermon, whether it's an actual coherent sermon he preached or a collection of the sorts of things he often preached. It doesn't really matter. We're here and we find not one invitation, not two, not three, but four invitations at the end of this sermon. So, like, I stand as a man under indictment that I need to work on this because, man, Jesus has four of them at the end of his sermon. And we're going to get, we're going to work through three of them today. Uh... Three opportunities for challenge and decision. And here's what we can, here's, if we're going to separate ourselves from it, we can see this pretty much categorically. When Jesus taught, he challenged. You don't find Jesus just giving a teaching and then letting it float off into space like, well, that's nice to know. Jesus didn't talk about things that were nice to know. He gave a teaching and right after the teaching came a challenge or an invitation. Since you know this, what are you going to do? And we're going to see he's come to the end of his sermon, and now since you know these things, what are you going to do? So let's go ahead and look at uh, the first of the three that we're going to look at today. Verse 13 is, chapter 7, verse 13 is the first one. And I'm going to read two verses. Here's verse 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now this is a great... uh, Great example of a good invitation because it's there's power. I mean, it's clear and it's strong and it challenges us. And because of that, I think problems immediately start to come out. Like, did he just say that many go to hell and that few come into life? Yeah, I think he did. I, I think that's the meaning of the text. I don't think that's the purpose of the text. I don't think the purpose of the text is Jesus just giving us this piece of trivia that you know most people don't make it to life. Most people don't find eternal life. I think he's giving it as a challenge. He's giving it to you to make you careful. In other words, to the hearer, you need to be careful because if you are not very intentional about following Jesus you will not arrive at life. That's what he's saying. He's saying if you just trust in your default position or if you go the way of the crowd 
or if you just try to be a little better than the next person around you, all the normal sorts of things that we're tempted, all the wishy-washiness that we're regularly called or fall back into, that life leads to destruction. That's what Jesus is saying. Another problem that might arise here in your mind is the notion of only a few people finding it as though it's lost. I mean, some people might say, well, this seems like kind of like an unmerciful God or a th- uh, God who doesn't really love us, that he would make eternal life so hard to find, that only a few people would find it. Well, that's not really what the text says. The text doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say that eternal life is hard to find. He says it's hard to live. Look at verse 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. It's not mysterious. It's that the way is hard. The way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So it's not because it's hidden. It's because it's hard. So Jesus is saying, listen, it is very easy. It's the easiest thing in the world to wind up in hell. It's what's going to happen to you if you don't make a decision. It's your starting position and your natural position. But the way to life is not. And the way to life is is going to demand that you're intentional and that it's challenging, it's costly, and it's distinct. I mean, there really are two... The two ways are so different from one another, right? The way to destruction is wide, easy, full of people. The way to Christ, narrow, hard. Few people. Jesus' first invitation is this. You are at a fork in the road. Which path are you taking? That's what he's saying. Which path are you taking? He's calling us to a real faith, which is so much more than like you simply agreeing to a certain fact pattern. He's calling you to a faith that's going to wake up and it's going to walk towards the Lord. And understand, there's going to be some things that are hard or costly that your first priority cannot be ease and comfort. But rather, it's the kingdom. I read somewhere this week, somebody described the narrow gate. Again, this is just a reflection. It's not actually in the text, but I think you can appreciate it. He suggested the gate is so narrow that you can't even fit through it. You have to die to yourself. It involves self-denial. And I I find that's, uh, I mean, it's interesting. It's not just, you're not just looking at two different paths with two different kinds of lives. One of the paths is actually saying, the Lord is going to, with you, kill off part of who you are and bring to life part of who you're not yet. Is that the path you want? To which some might say, well, that sounds like not the best path. Or at least it doesn't sound very inviting. You know, if you're going to invite somebody to your birthday party, your invitation would not sound this way. The way to my party is very hard. And chances are you will not find it. But I hope you can come. That's not very inviting. 
So there is this sense of, if we look at the kingdom of God, maybe with the wrong lens or in the wrong disposition, this might be somebody who still wants to live on the highway, right? The, the highway to destruction. They're there and they, they still embrace and love and cherish all the things that the highway has to give them. They'll look at that path. They'll look at the path of Christ and they'll think, there's nothing there I want. Everything, all I see over there is cost. But not everybody is that way. Some of us have had enough of this life and understand how hopeless it really is and how unable it is to offer what we really need. And so when they see the way of Christ, they see there's cost, but the gain exceeds the cost. Some people look at this and one of their problems is, well, this sounds like a lot of work and I thought I was saved by faith. I mean, after all, am I just saved by faith, not by works? Well, here, I don't think Jesus is talking about... I actually think he's talking about faith and not works. What he is doing here is describing the kind of faith you need to arrive at life. He's saying... Imagine you're someone who has not yet embarked out. You're at the fork of the road and you're choosing which way. He's saying, just hear the, the he's directly addressing your, your faith. He's saying, if you go that way, you're going to get it. It's going to be easy. It's going to be an easy walk with a big crowd of people, but it's going to end poorly. It's going to end in destruction and hell, a judgment. If you go this way, if you trust me and go this way, it will be hard in this life, but it brings you to life. He's addressing faith. What he's doing is weighing it out and saying, now, which way are you going to go? There's a danger I find in our culture. The subject of what's real, um, we typically have, as the years have gone on, we've said pretty much however you think about things is just fine. Like you can decide what's real for you. That has become uh, kind of an epidemic in thinking. The problem with that is it doesn't really make very much sense. I mean, how in, in the 150 people in this room, how can we all have, how can all of our diverse views of reality be consistent with one of them? Somebody's got to be wrong. And I just want to bring this to light because sometimes when we get to teachings, hard teachings like Jesus just gave here, there might you might feel empowered in your sense of personal realism to go, oh, I don't think that's true. And I just want to tell you, I think our culture has sorely over-exaggerated the power that your opinion has on the truth. So don't feel so well-armed with your opinion. Jesus has given us a decision. Jesus is not universally saving. He is universally calling people to salvation. All right, that's the first invitation. Here's the second one. Let's look at 15 through 20. Now, before I read it, I want you to listen for, for this. Who is the teaching for? Okay, not what is the teaching about. What is the teaching about and who is the teaching for are, are different here, okay? Let me read uh, verse 15. It says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistle? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, I know this teaching is about false teachers. I'm going to talk about them in a second, but it's not for false teachers. I mean, I suppose if a false teacher heard this, it might help them, but it's not intimately for false teachers. The teaching is for the faithful follower. In a way, you might say that right, false teachers, false prophets, false preachers. So it's a, the teaching is about people like me, but it's for people like you. What the Lord is saying is, to the faithful follower, is you need to beware, you need to be on your guard, and you need to be watchful. In other words, you cannot sit back and draft behind a leader in the faith as though he's responsible for your faith. No, you're responsible for your faith. I find this, in fact, the New Testament, by the way, the New Testament develops this idea. Paul is one day going to write, if you have a shepherd or an elder in the church and he's He's disqualifying himself by what he teaches. Do you know how you get rid of this elder? Do you call like a bishop? Do you go up above his head? No. It says the congregation. The congregation's job is to discipline and or remove that, that pastor or teacher. Now just think about that. Think of how empowering this is. The way that the Lord is empowering the listen, the followers with the responsibility to ferret out the substance that they're being taught. I really think this is, um, it's inspiring to me because it tells me and reminds me that the things that the Christians need to really work through the faith are the simple basic things the fruits of the Spirit, the Beatitudes, uh, the basic understanding of faith and grace and forgiveness and repentance, just the basic mechanics of the gospel, the, the work of the Spirit in us. These sorts of things, these sorts of things enable all of us to discern good from evil. And every believer is called just master those things and view life through them. I want to talk about the false teacher in a second, but first I want to talk about the test, the test that he gives here. And he says, you'll know them by their fruits. And in this, I, I might suggest, I, I, I would think less you'll know them by their deeds. I'd be a little bit reluctant to say, look at what they do, because false teachers who come like a, a wolf in sheep's clothing, they're more than able to produce deeds that appear good. That's, that's the disguise. 
The fruit, I would say, is, is to discern the fruit would be to look at the motivation behind the deed. Why does this teacher do, do what he did? What's driving that? What's behind it? What's, what's pushing it? What is operating behind the deed? That, to me, gets closer to the heart of why someone is doing something. And you are called to be spiritually subtle about that. You're called to have a good sense of it. Don't be intimidated by, I'm trying to think of things, PhD, which I don't have, fancy clothes, fine-sounding arguments, titles, the basic things of the faith can help you sift this out. Here's the reality, I think, is leaders want to be followed and liked just as much or more than as everybody else. And I'm gonna, what I'm going to do here is describe how I think false teaching would come into this house. Is <clears throat> uh, Since people want to be liked and leaders want to be liked, uh, they intuitively know, I think, a false teacher intuitively knows that your natural nature longs to get back on the highway that's heading to destruction. You, you want to pass if you can get it. And so false teachers often ingratiate themselves into communities of fellowship like this by telling you what you want to hear, which is, you're on the, trust me, we're on the narrow road. Oh, this is very narrow. This eight-lane highway is a narrow road, right? That's giving, sort of offering the things that people's carnal desires want under the guise of being on the straight and narrow. And they do this, I don't necessarily think with a new idea, at least I'm thinking, as I think, how would false teaching most effectively come into this house? I don't think it's with a new idea. I don't think you're going to be taken by storm with a story that I met with an alien and received a word, right? I don't see that happening. What I do see happening, and what I think our kind of people are susceptible to is a teacher who will begin to edit out portions of the counsel of God. So it's not about the new stuff he's saying. It's about the infrequency with which he's saying things that have always been here. How he says some things less You know, the verses may sound the same, the rhetoric may sound high, the readings may be the same, but in all of that, we're just allowing allowing people to drift a little closer to the things that God is calling them away from. That's how I think false teachers can be most dangerous. It's consistent under-teaching. I find this, I mean, I, the reason I feel like this is how it would come is because this is how it's tempted, is there's things that people say they want, oh, I just want to go to a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. That's what they say. What they mean is there's a lot of problems other people have, and I want to hear the pastor talk about it. I do not want him to address the issue I'm dealing with. Then he's meddling. So, there's something in us that feels that way. I had an occasion this last week where we were reading a text uh, in a Bible study uh, from 1 Corinthians. It'd be six months from now, so we have time to get ready for it. 
But a friend at the table said, you're not actually going to teach this, are you? And it caught me because I was like, oh, brother, i got to teach this. To which I said, yeah, well, I'm going to teach it. And I suppose I came to the conclusion that it's texts like that that need to be taught. They're so sorely undertaught, they are now radical. That's how it's, false teaching is going to come in here is statements like uh, God is love without an even share of all of God's other many attributes. Conversations about your best life now without equal conversations about self-denial and sacrifice. Heaven without hell. Prayer without confession. Salvation without repentance. Faith without works. That's how it comes in. Full life with the Lord without the fellowship. It's these omissions. It's heresies of omissions. To which you might say to all of this, how is this an invitation? This seems like a teaching about false teachers. Well, the teaching's for you, and I think this is the teaching, okay? The teaching is this. You are responsible for the answer you give on the day of judgment. When the day comes and you're called before the Lord and you, you say, well, this is what I did. And they say, why did you do that? And he says, well, the, my, my pastor said that to do that. The Lord would say, that's not good enough. You're called. You were called to ferret him out. And you were called to truth. In other words, you alone are responsible for the answers you give on the day of judgment. And you cannot pin that on any teacher. If we add invitation one, we would say we're at a fork in the road, right? There's a two ways to live and only two ways to live. It's not ambiguous, okay? It's two ways to live. It's a wide road and a narrow path. And number two, invitation two would be and you alone are responsible for this decision. Make the right decision. Let's look at number three. Verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven, who, who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I think this invitation is the most intimidating to a room of people who confess Christ like ours because everyone in this image was confessing Christ. They were all confessing Christ. The first invitation was kind of far off. Hey, there's people, and there's two ways to live, and some people do this, and some people do that, and we're like, yeah, okay, I'm on the straight and narrow, I'm fine. And then the second one says, watch out for false teachers, because you're responsible at the end of the day. Okay, I got that. Right Now we're in, now we're in. There are people in this very room who one day may likely come before the Lord and say, I went to church every day and I prayed in your name. And Jesus will say, I'm sorry, I have no idea who you are. That's close. It's uncomfortably intimate. Now, a lot of the themes in this were sort of 
echoed above, right? This notion of what's behind our works because these people have all these good deeds. Look at all my good deeds, Lord. Look at all the things I did. And, and, and there's sort of a sense of, well, those deeds don't really count. In fact, they are these wonderful deed workers who gain the phrase lawless by the end. You are lawless. So clearly their, their deeds, something behind the deed is out of order. But what I want to really catch in this teaching is the way that Jesus begins to insert himself. It hasn't really happened yet. In fact, it's hardly happened at all for this entire Sermon on the Mount. There's one other place in the very beginning where Jesus inserts himself. Otherwise, he's talking about the kingdom of God and how we should pray and the Lord, the Father. But then he says this in 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. We're going to say it to Jesus? And then he says this, will enter my kingdom, but the one who does the will of my Father. You know how we were taught to pray? We were taught to pray our Father. That's Matthew 6. And then later in Matthew 6, he says, don't worry, don't be anxious of anything. And he talks about the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. He says, doesn't your Father love you much more than these? So we have our Father, we pray. And there's this phrase, your Father. And a little later, last Sunday, last Sunday, who, which of you is going to ask your father for a loaf of bread? He's going to give him a rock. Right? Your father there, there's this second person plural, your father. These kind of concepts were very comfortable for Jewish ears. Jewish ears understood that our father cares for us. Okay? That he, that when Jesus says your father, like the collective you, that all the people of Israel are in some way the children of God. But Jesus doesn't say that here. Jesus says something he hasn't said yet in Matthew. And it's the sort of thing that gets him in trouble. He says, my father. No, no, you mean our father. No, no. I mean my dad. My father. Jesus is... I mean, all of the sudden, he's at the center of all of this, all that's happening. Look at the very next verse. On that day, what day is that? It's judgment day. On that day, many will say to me, who's <laughs> so on judgment day, many are going to come to Jesus and say to him, Lord, Lord. Every Jew would have told you there's going to be a judgment day. And every Jew would have told you that God's going to come and judge the earth. And every Jew would have said they're going to have to answer to God for what they've done. That's just, that was sort of basic theology of the time. Jesus has taken all of those spots. At the end of the day, it's going to be me who's there. And you're going to say to me what you, what you thought you were going to say to God the Father. I'm the one who's there. So Jesus puts himself at the center of this, and then he puts himself at the center of salvation. People are going to sit there and go, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this and didn't I do that? They're going to be immediately focused on the things they did, right? Because that's religion. Religion is about making sure you have the right body, you're a little bit better than the person next to you, or you live a good life, or you do good things, you do good things, right? It's about fruit. I know that, it's about fruit. 
So I got to do good things. And, and so even Jesus sort of lays out here for us the theoretically best things, mighty works and prophesying and casting out demons. You can't hardly think of better good things than that. He put the best good things on the list and then how does, and then immediately annuls them by saying they count for nothing because you don't know who I am. And I don't know who you are. In other words, all of the labor and all of the working that someone might be doing counts for nothing if there's not a relationship with Jesus at the center of their faith, driving their faith if it's not, if they're not doing it because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them. If they're not living towards Christ, they are not walking the path towards life. Period. Doesn't matter all the things you do, all the labor you have. If it's not done in the Lord, it's worth, it is lawless, is what he says. You might say earlier, we talked about how behind the deed is the motivation. What's the motivation behind the deed, right? That's where to look. You might go one step back. You might go behind the deed and even behind the motivation to who is motivating you to do this. Jesus is saying, that's where I'm looking. I don't simply want to know why you did it. I want to be I want to be the who behind it that drives you, that affects your motivations. Christianity is not a moral code. Jesus Christ is a person who died for you. The faith is built entirely on that. There's a lot of people who have in their minds that my religion is how I'm supposed to live. And Jesus is saying, you just, man, be careful because you could exhaust yourself in deed doing and find you've missed me. So we have these three invitations. The first one says, you need to understand there's really only two ways to live. There's a way the easy way, the natural way, the way you were born into, the way that the world teaches you, the way that's all around you, which is you're just going to wake up, eat, breathe, do what you want, and that will take you to hell. It's the easiest place in the world to get. Or there's the way, the way of life. And the second invitation is, and you're responsible for this, you have to make this decision. If it sits ambiguously inside of you, it's sort of like, Oh, it'll kind of all work itself out, or if you can't give it words, if you can't even like clearly think through it, I would say, be careful, because no one's going to answer for you then. And finally, like, there's a way to go, there's two ways to go. You're responsible, and the way to life is through Jesus. It's through knowing Jesus Christ. It's not through doing certain things. It's by knowing Him. That comes through leaning on him, trusting in what he said, trusting in his, uh, trusting him is the gateway to knowing him. Here's my last question. <clears throat> Does today's message require an invitation? I sort of think it didn't, doesn't, but I have these, this little challenge for you here. 
As you wrestle with the teachings of Jesus here, I want to invite you to talk about it. Out with a friend or a family member, with someone else. I want to invite you on the drive home or over the dinner table to, I'm asking you to let thoughts come out of your mouth so you can begin to hear yourself and feel it. I find, by the way, when I pray quietly, uh, sometimes I start to pray out loud because the reason I pray out loud when I'm by myself is because it's only then that I realize how badly I'm praying. When it's silently, it's kind of like, Lord, help me, yada, 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 do good stuff and other things. It's just kind of, it's like the squirrel that runs all over the place. When I open my mouth and I begin to talk, I realize I'm actually saying things that I should not say because I'm hearing them. My brain works through what I hear. I'm asking you to take what, what for you might be ambiguous and work it out so that you can say it. And if you can't, I would come back to the invitations of Jesus Christ. You know, there are only two ways. And you're responsible. And life is through Christ alone. I would come back to that. Because if your ambiguous sins cannot make it through that gate, then it's on the highway. So talk about it. Talk about it with your spouse or your friend or your children. Help your children. Don't give them a yes-no question like, you know, little Tommy, are you going to go to heaven? Yeah, Mom. That doesn't, you didn't help them. Okay, you didn't help them. Say, talk to me. Describe to me how you know that you're following Jesus. Or, or what, tell me what you believe about Jesus. I want to invite you to do that because I would hate and the text here makes it clear, I would hate for some of us to arrive on that day and be surprised by the fact that Jesus does not know us. Let's pray. Lord, may we receive your words and your challenge and warning and invitation. May we receive these as though they were directly from you. And as though they were given for our life. Lord, you speak as a parent who's trying to protect a child from harm. And we receive these invitations this way, Lord. These invitations, they challenge us in the very places that we would just as soon become thoughtless. And I do pray this, Lord, uh, uh, this morning, Lord, for anyone who's in this room who's coming into contact with these ideas for the first time or challenged by them afresh, Lord, I pray that as they seek you and begin to ask questions about you, that they might understand that the Father sent the Son who gave his life so that we might have life. I pray that the truth of the fact that Jesus shed his own blood for the forgiveness of our sins would begin to unlock this door so that they might know that there's forgiveness to be found and acceptance to be found and hope to be found all through Jesus Christ, Lord. Finally, this morning, Lord, I pray that the way, the narrow path through the narrow gate that we would see, it would begin to appear to everyone here as the way of better life 
as the good way. Lord, we pray this and all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.